The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word to us. All right. Merry Christmas. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Dave Adair. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. And uh, just as we get started, before we jump into this final sermon in our Advent series, I, I want to take a minute just to honor uh, in two ways. First and foremost, I don't think he's in here. I think he's serving in kids' church. But uh, Colson Woodard is our uh, artist in residence, I think is his official title. Um, but uh, he's an amazing resident we have as a church. And if you go out these doors, especially these middle ones, right in front of you are going to be four works of art that he has created, original. And he's been putting them up week, uh, each week of Advent. And there's just a beautiful images that have really helped me um, prepare my heart every time I've seen them to celebrate the coming of Jesus. And so if you haven't taken a look at those, uh, they're they're beautiful and, and moving. And if you see or uh, know Colson, just give him a pat on the back and thank him for serving us in that way. Um, it's just in the, a great picture of what art does at its best, which is just stir our hearts and communicate truth. And um, those, those four images of somebody on a journey and a sun rising is a beautiful um, just illustration of what Advent does and uh, draw, draws us to the light of life. And then secondly, um, I just, uh, you know, really since Thanksgiving, but especially this December, personally, as one of the pastors here, have been reflecting on the year. And um, one of the things that has struck me again and again is just how grateful I am for y'all. Um, and so it's it's a joy to be one of the pastors that gets to serve and, and be with you. And you guys are just an awesome church. And um, I, I, I love you much and I'm thankful for you. So... Merry Christmas. Um, as we always do, I want to pray for you. You pray for me. We're in it together. And, uh, and so we've got some good stuff to look at today, but we need, as always, um, the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's pray with each other and for each other. So Father, I thank you for my friends. We thank you for the gift of this moment. And we thank you for Christmas. <laughs> we pray the beauty of what we celebrate in new and deep ways by your help, Spirit of God, would strike us anew. Maybe for the first time, for some of us, in a deep way, we would see the beauty of the love of God that we celebrate at this time of year. And I pray for, for my own heart and my own words in a real way. Just help me serve my friends by stepping out of the way and pointing them to the beauty of the love of God. I pray that you would help me do that, Spirit of God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. It, 
it's almost expected that this time of year that I would get up here and say something along the lines of, um, you know, there's a lot that distracts us when it comes to celebrating Christmas. And, and in my own heart, right, I, I often will begin to wrestle with like what we do culturally, what might be referred to as like the fluff of Christmas, the stuff that inhabits many of the Christmas songs, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, all that good stuff, right? That, that I would hold that up as a pastor and, and kind of be like, hey, that's that's in the way of the true meaning and heart of Christmas, which certainly, like, it can be. And I know that, again, personally, I can look at that and, and my heart can go to a place and say, look, we need to cut the fat out of Christmas. And, and maybe, like, you know, pun intended when we're talking about the big guy in the, in the red suit. Like, none of that is important. None of that is helpful. And yet, this is what I'm, I've been thinking through this week is that you can go down that road in such a way, though, that we're, we maybe are missing out on something that's beautiful. Here's why. Like, when we actually, truly, like, are struck by what we celebrate this time of year, when we're struck by the true heart of the matter, the beauty and the power and the wonder that is Christmas, it really demands that we, that we celebrate in big ways. That we get a little wild, that we throw big celebrations. Joseph Bottom, who's this uh, gifted writer, uh, he wrote this essay several years ago called Joyous Surrender, A Rhapsody in Red and Green. And what he speaks about in this essay is that he has this friend, this, this young friend who's really godly and, and really wise, and he feels what we feel. Even if we're here today and we wouldn't say we're a Christian, we can long to experience something transcendent around Christmas and, and want to get to the heart of things and do away with fluff. And, and Joseph Bottom, his, his friend who loved God, he experienced that and tried to live that out in a way where he, to celebrate Christmas, it just kind of created his own tradition. It's very Puritan. And he would go and find one dead branch in the forest. And he would find that one small dead branch and he would put that dead branch in a pot on his dining table and he would fold a paper star and place it on this branch and, and put some string around it. If he was going to get real crazy, he'd put some popcorn on that stick. And that was it. And, and his Christmas celebration would be marked by just the simplicity and, and just like an austere approach to, hey, we're going to keep it real simple and spartan, if you will, and this is how we're going to lean into the Christmas season. And Joseph Bottom writes, you know, that's really commendable, but I think it's like dead wrong. And what Bottom writes, it was impactful to me this week, and I will read what he wrote in this essay. He says this, Give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing out on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled up to the rafters and dozens of creches my wife scattered wildly around our home like breadcrumbs leading back through the woods. Give me houses so lit up that neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcake so dense that they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. 
gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards. Shout out to the Brown family if you're in here. Um, and eggnog so nutmegged and that the school children carolers, carolers cough and sputter as they try to manfully gulp it down. He goes on to write, Tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. <laughs> and Christmas isn't tasteful, isn't simple, isn't clean, isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God intruded in this world. Now that strikes me as, as wisdom there. And some of the, there's something right about that. I mean, there is a way, right, where I was thinking this week that we can approach Christmas like wedding crashers. Like, we show up to the party. We're not really there for the, the root purpose of the party, but we, we want some free food and, and to dance, and it will be fun, right? But to really experience the richness of a wedding, don't you want to be a part of it? Don't you want to know the, the love story that's there. Isn't that truly how to celebrate? And I think what Joseph Bottom here is getting at in this essay is, hey, there is a way that we ought to radically celebrate in a profound way. And, and maybe some of us are going to do some weird things because of that celebration. But the heart of the celebration is that God has come into the world. And that's a fact. And to celebrate that fact, maybe we're going to put a 20-foot reindeer in our front yard like the person that lives across the street from Wild, Wilder Coffee on Boulevard. You know? Maybe next to Pastor Matt Polk's house, we, we're going to spend three months putting lights up on our house and so that our block has a traffic jam all through December because people are coming to tune into our personal radio station and experience the light show, right? Like people do some wild things in our city, but maybe just maybe we ought to do some wild things because there's a wild fact that God was born, God came into the world, let's do it all. The fact shines so brightly. It's such good news that it demands celebration. There's a story that St. Francis had this disciple that approached him on Christmas Day and asked St. Francis if it wasn't appropriate and really holy that they ought to fast meat on Christmas Day. And St. Francis replied and said, On a day like this, even the walls should eat meat. If they cannot, let us spread them with meat. I don't know what that means, right? But I know that I want to hang out with St. Francis. Like, that's, that's the type of guy I want to spend Christmas with. I think what he's getting at is, like, we, we have to celebrate. We have to feast because there's such good news. But to really celebrate as we ought, to not be wedding crashers, but to be a part of the true love of the celebration, we do need to understand the good news. We need it to strike our hearts to, to celebrate in a big way, like we have to be impacted in a big way at what the message of Christmas and by what the message of Christmas means about God and what it means about us. And that's why Advent's so helpful. I didn't grow up kind of recognizing the season of Advent. And I'm so happy we do as a church because the purpose of Advent is to, to help prepare our hearts to celebrate rightly and to, to focus on words that help us get to the heart of the meaning of Christmas each week, right? We've, we've looked at words that are rich and beautiful with doctrine and meaning as it relates to the good news of Christmas. 
Words like hope. Words like peace. Words like joy. And then here on this final Advent Sunday, we light this fourth candle and we look at the fourth word that helps capture, that helps us meditate on, that helps prepare our hearts to celebrate the richness of Christmas. And as we've already heard, that word today is love. And it's the best one. The Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13. It was probably read at your wedding, right? The greatest of these is love. But that presents a problem, and I don't think it's like a hot take. I think we all recognize it as the problem it is because especially in comparison to peace and hope and joy, love is used in such a common way in our culture, in our language, that, that it, it's con- it's confusing at times, right? And one pastor said it's like the junk drawer term of, of just having an affinity for something. Like if you ask me what I love, depending on the moment and the context, you're going to get a variety of answers, right? What do you love? I love OU football. I love fried plantains. <laughs> I love my wife, and I love God, and I love peanut butter cups. You know, it's just like, what's, what's, that's a lot of things to love, and I feel very differently about those things, right? But I use that word to apply to all of them, and therein lies the problem, right? It's just like, it's so common, love. It's like, it can be watered down. I was thinking of the Beatles this week. I love the Beatles, and the Beatles love love. 613 times in their songs, they use the word love, right? Love, 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 just again and again. And I'm like, McCartney was obsessed with it, but when he talks about it, it's often different than what I'm looking to have transform my life at Christmas time. It's not saccharine. It's not sweet. It's substantive. It's, it's, it's life-changing. It's not cheesy. It's the greatest thing in the history of the universe. And so to grasp the meaning of Christmas, we must grasp true love, and to to get a picture of true love, we look at this scripture, this promise, this good news from an angel to a dad that was going to be an adoptive father through a dream. And in the scripture, we get to see a picture of, of true love. What's the message of Christmas? What is the meaning of love? Well, this angel tells Joseph and the word love doesn't appear in the scripture, but, but the definition certainly does. And it shows up in, in two names that are given to this baby in the manger. Let's look at the first one. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the first thing I want us to see is we're looking at love at Christmas and what it means about God, what it means for us. We see this name, Emmanuel, God with us. This angel is quoting Old Testament scripture out of the book of Isaiah and saying this child in a manger, this child to be born, his name will mean God with us. Nearly 120 times in the Bible, a consistent theme, a major, a major uh, just, uh, revelation about God's heart that comes up again and again is that God wants to be with us. It's his heart. 
starts at the very beginning. The, the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 26. God says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. Joshua, God speaks to Joshua and says, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It's in the the prayers of the Psalms, right? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear fear no evil, for you are, you're what? You're with me. God prophesies through Isaiah. So do not fear, for what? For I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you, help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here at the beginning of Matthew, it begins with the good news that it's God's heart to be with us, Emmanuel. And fittingly, it's how Matthew ends. The final thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And even the end of the Bible Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, the message of Christmas is at the heart of the very message of the entirety of Scripture. That in Jesus, God wants to come and be with us forever. And this angel, speaking to Joseph through a dream, it's quoting this prophetic promise from Isaiah. And in that context, Emmanuel, when we look at it in Isaiah, we see that these are the circumstances that whenever we're surrounded by hardship, whenever a battle surrounds us, whenever everything is on the line and we are doomed unless someone comes to our rescue, then the promise of God is Emmanuel, God with us. That baby in the manger is God in the flesh. This is how Christmas starts. It's the very threshold of Christianity, that the baby born isn't just a prophet. He isn't just the greatest moral teacher in the history of the universe. Born of a virgin, a miraculous birth, something impossible that only God could do because it's God in the flesh, the Son of God. That baby is God. It's something totally unique to any faith in the world. Pastor Max Licato, he wrote this poem, really, called Just a Moment, and he's just letting his heart kind of pour out at the wonder of the incarnation. He writes this, God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened up herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. 
He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. I was hanging out at the park, Mitch Park, with my kids this week. And um, ironically, I was taking their picture in front of all the Christmas decorations that are up. And they've got a big, like, 12-foot by 6-foot love light display. And so I was taking their picture in front of it. And it was, it was one of these weird moments where we're looking at a giant sign that says love. And at the same time, two moms walked by and then uh, I'm hard of hearing. And so I wasn't trying to overhear and they were being, one of them was really excited. And she was saying, mine is, um, uh, God, what is it? The, the, uh, she was talking about the love languages, and she was talking about uh, quality time. She was like, mine is quality time. And it's been so helpful to learn that it's quality time. And so she was talking about that old Gary Chapman book, The Love Languages, and she had discovered it. She's a young mom and, and was sharing with her friend that what really communicates to her love is spending quality time, which is just so true, right? We all know that. And that's, I, I, was, I was just thinking this week of, like, the many books or movies or television shows where there's this common scene, right? And it plays out like this, that maybe there's a young girl who just performed in an incredible way in her play. And as the audience, as the the curtains draw back and, and the audience stands in just like a raucous applause, giving her a standing ovation, what does she do? Her eyes scan the crowd and and her eyes land on an empty seat. And even though everyone's celebrating her performance, you see in her eyes heartbreak because in that seat was supposed to be somebody that was supposed to be there for her. Supposed to show up for it. It's supposed to communicate their love by by showing up, by being there. My kids are uh, in YMCA soccer, and I've seen this kind of firsthand where after a game maybe that the kids won, maybe there's a boy on that team who scored, you know, eight goals. (laughs) As all the other boys are running off the field full of joy, that one boy doesn't seem to be too happy because there's nobody on the sidelines there who was showing up for him to watch him play. And why, whether it's fiction or real life, why is that circumstance so heartbreaking? Because we know that like, to be loved means that people show up. One of my mentors was here in the first service, uh, a pastor named Rock Bottomley, he asked me one time to ask my kids to sit down with them and ask, hey, what do I do as your dad that just can, that is helpful to you? What do you enjoy most? What, what do I do for you that really communicates love? And, you know, I've got four kids, and they're all four wired very differently, and they range from a, a beautiful 12-year-old girl to a wild, crazy three-year-old boy, right? And the answer to all four kids, from all four kids, all was essentially the same. And they said, hey, when you play with me in the backyard. So different, right? But the answer that each gave was, hey, when you show up, when you spend time, when you give me the gift of your presence, that communicates how much you love me. See, the good news of Christmas tells us something about God and tells us something about our hearts. 
the good news of Christmas, what it shows us about love is that, that God is not like somebody that, that leaves an empty seat. God, God shows up. He gives us the gift of his presence. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have life eternal. Right? That God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Right? What's the good news? What's at the heart of that verse? God came, presence. And even people that, that didn't think they qualified for that presence, even people that pushed away from it in their shame and their brokenness, God moves towards them. I think of the apostle Peter when he met Jesus for the first time. He begs Jesus. He says, hey, leave me. Depart from me. I'm not worthy of your presence. And how does Jesus reply? He says, no, no, Peter, you follow me. I know you're broken, Peter. I know you're sinful, but I came to transform you by my presence. You need to, to be with me. I came that you would have life, Peter, that you would know the love of God. Christmas means Emmanuel, God with us. And what I was just hit by this week is that there's like these times in my life where deep down in my heart, I think if I just do better, if I just am better, if I can just be more, then man, will, will God accept me or move towards me? When I feel distant from God, even though I know the gospel and I know the, the good news of the grace of God, there's still times deep down in my heart some days where I think like, man, I feel distant from him and it's just because I'm not enough. And what Christmas says to that real pride and that gracelessness and that self-righteousness, it just says, hey, be quiet and listen. Emmanuel, God with us, us in our mess, us as we are, us in our brokenness and sin, he came to be with us as we are so that we may know love in him. Which leads us to the second name that the angel shares with Joseph. He says, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. He, the Son of God has lots of names, and, and great people in history have, have names that they give themselves, like quite literally, great, or the conqueror, or the wise, right, or the magnificent, or the bold, and Jesus is the greatest person in the history of the universe. He has lots of names like the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, King of Kings, names that we lean into at Christmas like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And yet, the primary name the Son of God saw fit to go by was simply Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's the name Yahshua, which is, is Joshua, it means God saves. It's a really common name. Like it, David is a super common name. I know 37 people named David, and that's how Jesus was 2,000 years ago. It's like Jesus probably knew a bunch of dudes named Jesus. He played soccer with them, right? 
But it was intentionally given to him because of the rich meaning of that name. Other people gave their boy that name in hope. God saves. Yes, we're, we're longing for God to come and save and deliver. It was a promise all through the Old Testament. But this angel told Joseph to give his adoptive boy that name because he was the God who would save. He is literally the reality of the hope of that name in the flesh. God saves. Jesus. It's the name that we pray in as a church. It's the name that saturates our songs. And it's the name that's at the heart of why Christmas is about love. See, Jesus didn't come just to be with us but he came to save us so that we can be with him forever. The most powerful expression of love in the history of the universe we see in the birth, in the life, in the death of Jesus. And all the confusion of what love means and how it's overused, if we want to get to the heart of the matter, what is love? We look to and we listen to Jesus. In Luke 10, somebody asked Jesus what it, what it looks like to love a neighbor. What does it look like to love somebody? And he told this story called the Good Samaritan about this man who was beaten and robbed. And the story of the picture of love Jesus shared was a man that slows down and takes time. At, at, at no benefit to himself, but to give sacrificially of his time at great risk to himself to, to help restore and rescue somebody in their darkest moment. And that story was shared as, as a literal way in which to, to show us how to love and live people. But in a deep way, it was actually just a wink and a hit and a nod and a foreshadow of how he was going to ultimately love us. In John chapter 15, the last night Jesus shared with his disciples, he said, There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And the next day he lived that out by freely, willfully going to the cross to die. The Apostle John, history of the church, has um, called for the last 2,000 years the apostle of love. In his gospel, he's really aware of God's love. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> like he's, he's just really big on being loved by God. And he, he wrote three letters to the early church, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. They're real, they're real short, and they're saturated by the love of God. It's like John saw Jesus firsthand, was one of his best friends, and the wonder of John's life was the very love of God. And writing about that love, he said this in 1 John chapter 4. He said, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It's talking about the wonder of Christmas there. God showed up. We've seen love with our own eyes. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Right? Propitiation, that's a, that's a big word, and it's a great Christmas word, right? Like, I wish propitiation I had on, like, a Laura Dunn mug that I could drink my coffee. Like, I wish that people painted not just joy on shiplap on their front porches, like, during Christmas. I wish that in lights we spelled out propitiation on our, on our front lawns, Right? 
It's like, what does that mean? It's a rich word that helps us just grasp love. It means averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. We give gifts. We receive gifts. And propitiation is all about gifts, the gift that we need the most, turning away God's just wrath because of ways that we've turned away from him, the crimes we've all committed against God. That's the message of Scripture. We've all run. We've all fallen short. We've all rejected his love. And God, because he's loving and good, that that rebellion, that there's, there's justice that's demanded. And, and the greatest gift ever given is Jesus saying, hey, I will pay the price for the sins of everyone who's rejected and run from the love of God. And that gift was given on the cross. See, that's... What we have to keep in mind at Christmas is that that child in a manger would live a perfect life for 30 years. He would live out a, a earth-shaking, changing ministry for three years where he would be present, God with us, to heal the sick and cast out demons, but proclaim good news about God's love. And the climax, the summit of that ministry was him. What it was always about was him laying his life down as a gift to pay the price for our sins so that we may know the love of God. So we're all going to, hopefully, in the coming days, we're going to get some gifts. We're going to give some gifts. But this is what Christmas is ultimately about. This is the love that is made known to us that we celebrate this time of year. The greatest gift in history was God who came with us in the flesh to save us from our sins by giving his life for us. Some of us have received that gift, and it's really fitting to celebrate. Eat meat, right? Need be, maybe blow up a 20-foot reindeer. Do your thing as long as at the heart of it, it's celebrating the fact that God came to be with us, that we might be saved. And some of us in this room have never received that gift. And it is fitting that especially this time of year that you would for the first time receive that gift. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. Nobody does, but it is yours in Christ Jesus. He is your king. There's no receiving him as king. Like, he's king. He made you. He formed you. You were his idea. You can receive him as king as we sing. You can recognize who he is, your creator, your maker, who loves you perfectly so much that he came from heaven to earth and laid his life down so that you may know the love of God and have life. You can do that this morning. Repent of sin. Run to him, ask him for forgiveness, and recognize him as King and Lord, Savior, love. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for this moment with them again. And we thank you for the true heart of Christmas, the love of God made known to us in Christ Jesus. 
And these coming days for many of us are going to be just filled with joy and beauty and peace and celebration. And, and for a lot of us, they are going to be hard and heavy and sad for many reasons. But whether circumstances are, are what we would want them to be or whether it's going to be a heavy week, there's something true for each and every one of us to build a life on, a solid rock that is your love, God, made known to us in Christ. And so would we be able to lift our heads, lift our voices, lift our hearts, regardless of what our circumstances are going to look like in the coming days, to celebrate the true, unshakable fact that the Son of God is Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, Savior. That is good news. May we receive and celebrate in light of that good news as we should. Spirit, will you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.